readings in the worthy name of Jesus. You can turn your Bibles to the book of Micah. I'd like to bring a message this morning, trying to cover the entire book in one setting. Uh, going through the, the uh, minor prophets, and somebody said at Marystown, are you almost done? I said, no, just a little over halfway. So this morning we want to look at the book of Micah. A lot of the prophets have uh, similar messages. A lot of them are saying the same thing at different times or even saying the same thing at the same times. Like uh, Isaiah and I believe Micah preached at the same time. But they all seem to have a theme, a message of judgment, a message call to repentance, and then a glimmer of hope. So I'd like to start just at the beginning here with some familiar verses that are found in Micah that we go to a lot. And the first one is that Jesus, the prophecy of Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that which is a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old to everlasting. So it's a prophecy of Jesus coming as a baby. We go to it at Christmas time. And uh, so it's a very familiar verse that we want to look at today. We're going to look at it a little later. The classic verses that we go to a lot is, and this is the heart of the book. This is, could be the title here, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Verses that we often use before revival meetings or, uh, and and times like that. But this morning we want to look at it, these verses in their context and look at it. What is Micah really, what is God really saying and how does it apply to us today? And one of the most precious promises in the Bible is found here in Micah at the end of the book. And who is a pardoning God like thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all our, their sins in the depths of the sea. Here the book ends with this song of praise to God for his mercy and his forgiveness and his compassion, his faithfulness and his steadfast love. So Micah is quoted five times, I believe, in the New Testament. Jesus quoted Micah. His name means who is like God, who is comparable to God. Uh, his name reflects the inc incomparable nature of God. So now we want to look at the uh, uh, just by way of introduction to the book. We're just going to look at verse 1. It gives us the introduction to the book. It says there in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morshite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So here we see the author is Micah, and we see that he is from Morsheth, or he's a Morshite. Uh, he would have been from a town 25 miles southeast of Jerusalem, more out in the country, would have been towards the Philistine territory. And it mentions kings here that he would have served uh, during their time of reign. Jotham, bad king. Ahaz is another bad king. Hezekiah was a, a good king. And so this time span is maybe 40 years. So uh, Micah would have prophesied during these kings and uh, would have been over a, a length of time. So he probably prophesied with Isaiah. And we see a lot of their uh, uh, 
writings are similar. And he, so he would have been a contemporary with Isaiah, possibly Amos and Hosea, would have been before the Assyrian captivity took place. So they, uh, Isaiah, Micah spoke to the same people, same time with the same message. So he, and another thing we see here is that he preached to the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Samaria is the uh, capital of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem being the capital of the southern kingdom. So he was a prophet to both the southern and the northern, probably preached mostly to the southern and Judah. So his message is a message of warning. Uh, for them in their day, but it, I believe it was written for them, but it's also very, very applicable to today. You know, you could think some of these prophets were writing about our day and age, the things that were, uh, they're writing about, the things that we see in our world today. Uh, at this time, Judah and Israel both were in decline, spiritual decline. There was all kinds of injustices. There was lawlessness. There was bad leaders, Micah calls out. And Micah seems to be very sensitive to the injustices. And we're going to see that as we go through uh, the book here. Maybe because of he was from the country, maybe of the poorer class, and maybe he was bothered by these injustices that he saw with the weak and the poor being taken advantage of. But we see that... Uh, he was, uh, really speaks out against these uh, injustices. Now the book of Micah has three sermons in it, if you would uh, really look at it closely. There's the first sermon is in chapters one and two, and they, all these sermons start with the word hear. Uh, here in, in uh, verses chapters one and two is hear all you my people. And then chapter three to five, we see another uh, really speaking out to the leaders of Israel. And then chapters six and seven, we see another message here that really uh, speaks out. Uh, God is calling Israel into the courtroom and he's coming, he's saying, come and let's, let's talk about these things here. So number, the first one, he really exposes sin. Second uh, sermon there, he zeroes in on the leaders. And the third uh, one is the court scene where Israel is on trial. God is bringing a case against them. And each of these sermons ends with a messianic statement or a glimmer of hope that Israel could claim. So if you go through the book, it's a little bit, uh, a lot of abrupt changes and a lot of uh, changing from uh, subject uh, as we go through it. But this morning, I'd like to look at it in a little different way to try to get through it in one setting. And we want to look at it in three points. We're not going to go it by sermon by sermon, but we're going to look at, number one, we're going to look at how Israel is accused. God, through Micah, is calling out sins. And we want to look at those in all the three different sermons. And then we're going to zero in on chapter six, where Israel is on trial. And we're going to spend a lot of time there. And then last, we want to look at Israel's hope. After each of these sermons, Israel has promised hope. There's a glimmer of hope in each one of them. And we're going to bring them together in, in one. So we're not going to go through an order, but we, uh, we will try to get through it in uh, this way. So let's read number, uh, okay, first of all, let's read number chapter 1 and verse 2 to 4. We want to see the, uh, here it says in verse 2, we looked at one already. Hear all you people, hearken, O earth, and all that is therein, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. 
For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains shall be molded under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, as the waters that are poured down a steep place. So verse 2 here, the people are summoned by the Lord himself to hear the message of judgment. And God is coming down from his holy temple, it says there in verse 2, to witness against them. And when he comes in verse 4, it says uh, he's going to leave a footprint and everybody's going to know that he's here. And then in verse 5, we go into the first thing that Israel is accused of, and that is their idolatry. It says in verse 5, for the transgression of Jacob is, is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What are, the, what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field, and, I, and as plantings of a vineyard I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. I will discover the foundations thereof. All the graven images shall be beaten into pieces, and all the hairs thereof shall be burned with fire, and all the idols thereof I will lay desolate, for she gathereth it as a hair of a harlot, and they shall return to the hair of a harlot. So the first thing that's mentioned here at the beginning of the book is the idolatry. The high places refer to their false worship, their idolatry uh, was religious worship without a relationship with God. It mentions carved images. It mentions the, uh, the, uh, the, the high places. And I believe that the uh, judgment was predicted because of the idolatry. Uh, it, it says in verse 5 there that Samaria will be a heap of ruins. And Jerusalem, it mentions that also in chapter 3. And judgment did come, eventually came. They were when the Assyrians came in. So here we see they were called out for their idolatry. This is something that came up over and over again. Uh, their idolatry, uh, because they left the true worship of God, there was a downward sparrow in many ways. There's all kinds of injustices that we're going to look at here. There was covetousness, there was greed, there was cheating, there was oppression of others, there was stealing. In chapter 2, it says, and we'll go into the next one that he calls out, the greed and the covetousness and the stealing. It says in chapter 2 and verse 1, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in their power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. So here we can see they were laying in bed instead of uh, not being able to sleep and praying or whatever. They were devising what evil they could do. And then they wake up and they go out the next day and do it. That's what it says. And verse 2 talks about their greed. They were plotting to take land. They would lay in bed and plot to take land. You know, it reminds you of Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel, uh, through deceit and force, took the land for Ahab. But here we see it's greed, and it was greed, not just greed, but stealing. Deliberate stealing out of greed. And why did they do that? It says in verse 1 there, because it was in their power of their hand to do it. They were powerful people and could do it. They could get away with it. And we think we see that in our day and age. But uh, when we think about it coming back home to us, you know, how does greed and covetousness affect us today? Does it plague the church? 
you know, in uh, Ephesians, I believe it says, you know, that it uh, talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, how is covetousness idolatry? It's competition with our contentment in God. And we see that uh, this was going on in their day, and I believe it's a message that applies today. With, on greed and covetousness, I believe, is, is uh, uh, alive today, and it's, God is speaking through Micah to us today. God says in verse 3, you know, they lay in bed and had these devising these evil plans. In chapter 2, in verse 3, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise evil, from which ye shall remove your, your necks. Neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. God is saying, if we go on in verse 3 to 5 there, God is saying, I have plans for you too. And it's not going to be good for those of you that have sinned. Because you have taken advantage, judgment is coming, and it's going to be taken away from you. So God is speaking out against their greed and their covetousness. And uh, so another thing we see is their violence, and we see that prevalent today. It's mentioned three times. I don't think we're going to say a lot on that. There was dishonest in business. Maybe turn back a couple chapters to chapter 6 in verses 10 and 11. Chapter 6, verse 10 and 11 says, And there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? Here they were called out for their dishonesty in business, their false scales, their scant measure, and that's abominable. Uh, different places it talks about the different weights and uh, divers weights which would be different weights you know the old balancing scales would have a one pound weight in the one side and your merchandise on the other side well these shrewd business people would have this uh, different weights and they would have a 16 ounce maybe for buying and a 15 ounce for selling and God says uh, he was calling them out for their dishonesty their dishonesty in, in Deuteronomy in the law, it says that thou shalt not have in thy bag divers' weights, a great and small. Proverbs talks about it as well. Divers' weights and divers' measures, both are an abomination to the Lord. So God hates it. God hates dishonesty in business. Uh, they were called out here for it. And Micah actually laments that there's not one honest man in Israel. In chapter 7, if your Bibles are open there, in verse 2, said the good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. So that was the state of where they were at. Now, another thing we see, he's calling out the leaders. In chapter 3, now we're not going to read chapter 3, but as a whole chapter devoted to uh, the corrupt leaders. God blames Israel's leaders. There was corruption in verse uh, 1 to 3 of the leaders, and then verses 5 to 7, we see the corruption of the prophets. And in verses 9 to 11, we see the corruption of the priests. The whole leadership was corrupt. Can you imagine? In verse 2 it says, Who hate the good, this is talking about the leaders, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones. Uh, they were, it, it was exactly opposite of what it was supposed to be. And you would think they would be the ones to be fair and to be just, but they're the ones that hated the justice. 
So it was really bad. It talks about the corruption of the leaders. It mentions deception in verse 5. It mentions bribery three different places among the judges. They just, they didn't, they hated justice. There's a basic dis, general dishonesty uh, through. You see, when you have bad kings, you have bad things that follow. And when you have good kings, you have good things that follow. And uh, its leaders are influential. They are. You can't get around it. And that's why leaders are called to a higher standard. Uh, James says, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that you shall receive the greater condemnation. And you can say, well, this morning, well, I'm glad I'm not a leader. But if you're a father here this morning, you're a leader. If you're a husband, you're a leader. You're, God calls leaders to a higher standard. In chapter 3 here, God calls them out. Another thing we see is they encourage their false prophets or they like their, their false prophets. They didn't want to hear from the true prophets like Mike and Isaiah. They, didn't they wanted the prophets that would tickle their ears and say the things that they wanted to hear. And they, wanted to, they liked the ones that would tell them that everything's okay, everything's good, what, what's, everything's going to work out. But Micah in chapter uh, 2, he, he calls them liars. These, these uh, prophets that were saying, the tickling their ears, he calls them liars. But God is rebuking the people here through, tr through truth using Micah, and they would rather hear a lie. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to tr hear the truth. And that's, uh, I wonder if that hasn't changed a lot today. People don't want to hear the truth. You know, uh, and actually, they were doing all of this, these, these things that we're talking about, and yet they had the audacity to say, and look, turn in your Bibles to chapter 3 and verse 11. I'm sorry we're going fast, but we want to get to the heart of the book. In, in chapter 3 and verse 11, they had the audacity to say, the heads thereof judged for reward, and the priests thereof taught for, teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money, yet they will lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. So they, they thought, you know, they were in Jerusalem, they had the temple, they, they could say, you know, God is with us. We're still here. No judgment came. No judgment will come. You know, they had the appearance of religion, but no real relationship. And we're going to get to that. But we have people today, you know, they say, they don't say, is that the Lord among us? They say, we're Christians. We're Christians. You know, is, here they, they, all this was going on, yet they said, isn't the Lord among us? So I think this book is for us today. <clears throat> there, you know, we look at this and there's all kinds of, what uh, started with idolatry, led into all kinds of injustices, and Micah doesn't call out the immorality, but a lot of other prophets call out the immorality. The idolatry was the way they insulted God. The immorality is the way they indulged in themselves, and the, and the uh, injustices were the way they injured other people. And God saw all this in one package as sin, and he's concerned with all sin. And in the middle of all of this, God asks him a question. Now we're going to get to chapter 6. God asks him a question. What have I done for you to act like this? Chapter 6 and verse 1. You can turn to chapter 6. We're going to get into the next point here. Israel is on trial. God says, what have I done to you that you act like this? The scene now is turning into a courtroom scene. And God says, state your case against me because I have a complaint 
against you. Israel's on trial. We're getting to the, the heart of the book here. So let's read chapter 6 and verses 1 to 8. It says, Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the earth and the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherewith have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of the servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beer, answered from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams or ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for the transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? God says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So here we have the courtroom scene. You know, God is, <clears throat> Israel's on trial. And uh, we have a courtroom scene. God is the prosecutor, and Israel is the defendant. And the mountains and the hills are the judge or the jury. Depends how you want to look at it, if it's a, a jury there. <clears throat> so the uh, interesting imagery here with the mountains and the hills being hearing the case but uh, it says that they were there from the foundations of the world. And so they would have saw the, uh, uh, they would have, the, hill, the mountains and the hills would have been there when Ahab, uh, or when the uh, Mount Carmel experience happened. That would have been 150 years earlier. They, would have, they were around a long time from the foundations of the world. They would have seen it all. They're going to recognize this testimony. They'll know if the case has merits or not. <clears throat> He starts off with, uh, in verse 3, with what have I done for you to act like this? What have I done? God wants to know how he wearied his people. And in verse 2 there, it says the Lord has a controversy and he pleads with his people. He's pleading with them. And he, he doesn't just have a little pet peeve here. I mean, this is in a courtroom setting and laws have been broken. Laws have been broken. And he says testify against me. God says, I want you to answer me. I want you to answer me. Testify me against me. Now he said in verse 3, want to notice, we can't miss this. He still calls them my people. My people. He says, but now I'm going to state my case against you in verse 4. He says, God is judging his people here. He's holding them accountable for all the sins, for all the injustices that were called out for all the uh, idolatry and the immorality. He is justifying his judgment. He's saying, I have a right to judge my people. He is just and he's also merciful. But he says, he starts in verse four by, he says, remember, remember coming out of Egypt and all that I did for you. Remember crossing the Red Sea when you walked on dry ground. Was it not I? Was it not I, God says? 
And uh, remember Balaam, when he tried to curse you for Balak, and every time he opened his mouth, blessing came out instead of cursing. Remember, was it not I? God is reminding them of his faithfulness in the past. Don't you remember all that I did for you to teach you my faithfulness? He's reminding them a little bit of his history, their, their history. And he says, how does that weary you? How does that make you tired of me? How does that, what have you got against me? God's saying, tell me why you're turning away from me like this. Have I treated you badly? God is the prosecutor is asking the question, why? Why are you behaving like this? And he says, I want you to answer me. I want you to answer. What are the people going to say? What are they going to say? Well, here's their answer in, uh, in verse uh, 6 and 7. What are, what are they going to say? Did, they, you know, did the people know God's word? Did they know God's law? Did they hear the prophets as they were preaching to him? I believe they were warned again and again and again. God is faithful. His people, he, they knew what he wanted. And here's what they say. <clears throat> Wherewith shall we come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So here they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? When we think of all that God has done for us, what shall we do? That is a good question to ponder, to think about. But they, they, they said, if, what, will God be pleased if we bring a lot of offerings? A lot of tithes, is that going to please God? If we bring uh, the blood of a thousand rams, like a lot, is that going to please God? Or rivers of oil, is that going to please God? If we give our firstborn, is that going to please God? And it's no. God wanted reality. God wanted righteousness. God wanted mercy, not ritual. You know, and, and in verse, uh, verse eight, 8, we have the Lord's reply. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. He already told you, and this is what he requires of you. But, you know, as he looked out, he couldn't find it. He couldn't find it. In chapter 7, in verse 2, it says, The good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. So what God was looking for, he couldn't find. They were doing the exact opposite. What God was accusing them of is their injustices. Their no mercy. And they were proud. They were proud. Micah couldn't find one honest man in Israel. Now, what does it mean as we, if we look at this closely, this, uh, this one verse that God wants? To do justly is to simply do what's right, to be upright. The Bible uses the term upright, to do what's right, to do what's right in every situation. Uh, not having partiality, uh, not taking advantage of other people or mistreating. There was a lot of mistreating going on. And God wants us to be fair and to be just in our relationships to other people. And to love mercy. What does it mean to love mercy? Well, it says it's more than just being merciful. It's one thing to be merciful, but to love it. He's asking us to love mercy, not just like it, because God is merciful. What does loving mercy look like? Well, 
I, one of the things it do, it is, is it's being quick to forgive. You know, being quick to forgive. You know, when somebody wrongs you, saying it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, rather than hold somebody by the throat until they and remind them of the wrong they've did, or just or saying, you know, just uh, just wait, or maybe it's maybe it's uh, wanting to set that score straight. No, loving mercy. Loving mercy is giving the benefit of the doubt. You know, you you want you want mercy. Well, show mercy. Uh, you want to receive merciful be. To receive mercy, be merciful like God is. And then walking humbly with thy God. Walking humbly, being humble about yourself, about your life, about what you've accomplished. Because it's all from God. Everything we have, our abilities, everything comes from God. We have nothing to boast about on our own. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know, um, can you think about it? God resists the proud and it gives grace to the humble. You know, being, being humble is having a proper attitude about ourselves. It's a proper attitude of who we are, and it's also a proper attitude about God and who He is. And that's, we, we need to walk humbly before God. God honors a humble and a broken, a broken and a contrite spirit. He, he opposes the proud and the arrogant. It's just against His nature. It's against his nature. He gives grace to the humble. You know, I believe if the children of Israel would have walked in humility, they wouldn't have been, that, that captivity probably wouldn't have happened. They were proud. They were not, they were not walking humbly before thy, thy God. God says, are you truly grateful for what all I did for you? God says, give me your life. Give me your life. I don't want your money. I don't want your sacrifices. That'll be part of it, yes. But I want you. I want you to serve me. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a, contrite, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. So in a nutshell here, God is saying what he wants out of us. You know, Micah spent all this, uh, these seven chapters uh, telling, to, to, like, exposing what no justice, what, uh, what injustice looks like and what no mercy looks like and what walking proud looks like. And here in one verse, or in just three phrases in this one verse is what God wants. It's, a, it's the condensed version. It's what God wants, do justly, Love mercy and walk humbly with thy God. It's like in the New Testament, we have love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the, it's the, in all this is fulfilled all the law and the prophets. So it's the, it's the condensed version that God wants us to do. So what is, now let's think about the court case. You know, what is the verdict? What is the verdict? Well, I don't really see a guilty verdict uh, spell out loud and clear. But it, it is, it's not really spoken yet assinuated. It's assumed, I believe, that's pretty obvious they're guilty. God calls on them to change. God's calling on them to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And I believe they remain guilty because they didn't repent. They didn't repent. Or we could say they didn't listen. And the consequences was one thing, and that was judgment. Judgment. Judgment will come. And here we see verses in the, the first chapter and the third chapter. 
that uh, it talks about the judgment that will be coming because they did not repent. In verse, uh, the first one is called out to Samaria and the second one is called out to Zion that they will be as a, therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard, I will pour down the stones thereof in the valley and I will discover the foundations thereof. And in chapter three, we see, therefore shall Zion be, for your sake, be plowed as a field and Jerusalem become as, a, as heaps and the mountain of the house of the high places of the forest. And we know that this took place. It wasn't that long after this that the, the northern kingdom fell and it was destroyed. It was in a, in a, in Samaria was in a heap of a field. And later on, Jerusalem, the same way, was a judgment came. Uh, Jer Jerusalem was later. But the, uh, it was like, in, it says in verse chapter one and verse nine, it says that her wound was incurable. Uh, for it has come up unto Judah, for he has come into the gates of my people, even to Jerusalem. It's like they crossed a line. You know, the, uh, I believe another place, one of the other prophets, or is it in uh, Chronicles, the end, of, the end of the second book of Chronicles there, it says that they, there was no remedy. There was no remedy. They crossed a line. God did everything he could to try to bring them back to repentance. But there was, there was, uh, th there was God's only recourse because there was, they just kept on going their own way. So there's multiple verses that talk about the desolation and the utter destruction because of their sin. But the good news is that it doesn't stop there. You know, for there was hope. There was hope. So there, always we see when there's the, uh, we see God's mercy and the hope, a window of hope coming through. So Micah gave a lot of gloom and doom. And despite the warnings, you know, despite the pitiful situation they become, despite the pending judgment that we just looked at that was going to happen because they didn't repent, Micah gives hope. Micah gives hope. Some of the very uh, most inspiring sections of scripture here that deal with the hope for the future. Now there was the, the, sh the, the short-term hope or the near hope and also the future hope, the hope that we're still looking for. So the first hope is, was their return after the exile. And we see there in chapter, Micah chapter 2 and verses 12 and 11, and I have highlighted, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as a sheep of Borah, as, uh, as the flock in the midst of their fold, and they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. And it talks about the breakers come up before them, and they have broken up and have passed through the gate, and they are gone out by it, and the king shall pass before them, and the Lord on the head of them. So here we see the, uh, the, after the judgment, God would gather the remnant back. And we know that happened uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah, that they returned to their land. And it talks about the breaker. The Lord would break anything that would hinder their restoration. And we know that it did happen. And also in verses, chapters four and verses six and seven, it also talks about the, uh, another place where it says, I will assemble her that holdeth, I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. I will make her that holdeth a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even evermore. 
So there it goes also, it even goes into talking about the second verse there about the millennial kingdom. So it was the, the, uh, the near future, the, the hope for the near future. If you're, if you're in chapter four, you can turn to chapter four. We're gonna look at that next here in a little bit. But in, in chapter three ends with Jerusalem being destroyed. And then it goes right into the glory of Christ's millennial reign in chapter four. The future hope, when the future king will reign, when Jesus will reign in Zion. Chapter four um, in verse one says, but in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow unto it. So here he's now talking about the last days. So there was that, that near hope when they would return into their land and now here it's talking about the last days uh, it seems like a lot of the prophets, they didn't see the church age. You know, they saw out there, they saw the, uh, the, uh, the, the return. When they returned, they saw the, the coming of Jesus the first time. Jesus came as uh, his first coming. And they saw the, a lot of the prophets talk about the, the, the last days or the great day, the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord. And here it's, it's, re, it's looking out there at the, uh, the, when Jesus, his second coming, and the, the valley between the church age, you don't find a lot of the prophets, uh, I, I don't believe they saw much of it. Yes, Joel did talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, so we have a little bit of the church age, but it seems like the prophets, they all focus on that end time, and that was uh, far out for them, but very near for us. That's our, that the, the, we're at the, at the threshold of a, of a new age uh, coming into uh, being very soon, the millennium, millennial age, when Jesus comes back and, uh, and, and when he comes back and sets up his kingdom in this earth. So in chapter 1 here, in ch uh, chapter 4, verse 1, verse 2, it talks about the, the coming, let us go up to the mountain, and mountains are often referred to as government. So it's, let's, let's, it's referring to Christ setting up his government, his earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom, something the Jews thought would happen in their day. The Jews were sure Jesus was going to set up his kingdom in his, when he was here the first time. But no, he's coming back again, and he will set up his earthly kingdom, and he's going to judge. In verse 3, he's going to judge many nations and rebuke strong nations from afar off. And they, uh, uh, I'll wait there to re read the next verse here, but he's going to judge. He's going to be the ultimate ruler. He's going to rebuke strong nations from afar off. He's talk, we're talking about the king in Zion. We're talking about uh, he's going to settle all disputes. So then we have this amazing verse uh, there highlighted. It says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn more war anymore. So we have the, uh, the promise of this uh, when there'll be no more war no more when pruning hooks will, when the swords will be uh, beaten into plowshares now there's a verse up in the united nations on inscribed on the wall and this is micah 3 the second half of micah 3 when it says that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks it's a little hard to read there but nations shall not lift up a sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore 
And United Nations has that, I guess, maybe as their motto or their mission statement. And actually, there's a statue showing uh, beating a sword into a plowshare. Uh, thinking of Isaiah talks about this and Micah does as well. Now, I do uh, respect everything that the United Nations is, is about and what they're trying to do. But the question we could ask, will United Nations bring this peace that Micah is talking about? when we'll no, learn war anymore. No more war. You know, or have they done it? No, I believe it's gonna take God's government to do that. Jesus on the throne. When Jesus is, is uh, and this is talking about the millennial kingdom. You know, today our military budgets are through the roof and nuclear weapons are just increasing. But you know, this is only half the verse that's up in the wall here. The first half of the verse is when the Lord reigns in Zion and he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations from afar. This is talking about when Christ is reigning in, uh, in Zion. So it's the, the millennial kingdom and the military budget will be zero. And I believe it's going to happen because Micah talks about it and Isaiah talks about it. But it can't happen till the king comes. And then it goes right into chapters, jumps around a lot, but it goes right into chapter 5 and it talks about Jesus coming, his first coming. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, thou, though thou be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that was a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. So this is talking about now his first coming, when Jesus came as a baby. And it says that his goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. He's not going to be a normal baby. He's going to be uh, eternal. He's not a normal uh, baby. And this prophecy was given 700 years before it happened. And it was fulfilled by a Roman emperor to do a tax. A census tax took Mary and Joseph into their hometown. So that was his first coming. But at his second coming will be, um, when he comes a second time, will be when he sets up his kingdom on earth. Now the rapture is not his second coming. The rapture, I believe, is another event when he will come back and he'll, he'll, we'll meet him in the clouds and he'll take us up and there'll be the wedding in the air that we were talking about in Sunday school there. The, we'll we go to the wedding and we will come back with him. And I believe his coming back, we will come back with him when he lands on Mount Zion, according to Zechariah. And then he's going to set, he's gonna take care of things and there's a lot in that, but then he's gonna set up his millennial kingdom. And that's when these swords will be uh, beaten into plowshares and we'll know nothing of war anymore and it'll be good news for uh, everyone now a lot could be said there but just a lot in chapter 4 gives a lot of talks about the millennial kingdom and there's a lot of contrasts you know we looked at how the idolatry the idolatrous worship that was practiced in Micah's day and this contrasts here with the pure worship that's going to be then in the millennial kingdom and it also uh, talks about the uh, in verse, uh, the next, the, the, in verse 5 there, but he, they shall sit every man under his vine and, and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. And here we see the, uh, like the, uh, the Jew would really love to have their own vine and their own fig tree, and this is a beautiful picture of things to come in the millennial kingdom. Then we end with uh, the, 
and I, I know we're, we're rushing through, but trying to get through the whole book. And we end up with uh, the beautiful uh, promise of the Bible. One, a wonderful confession of faith. It's a song of praise extolling God's mercy, his forgiveness, his compassion, his faithfulness, and his steadfast love. It says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again and will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. So Micah says here, who is like, who is, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? And it's a play of, of, of uh, words on his own name. His, his name his means, you know, who is like God? Who is comparable to God? So he asks the question here, who is like unto thee? But he's actually making a statement that God is incomparable. That he points out his character, the nature of God, that he, he pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in mercy and he'll have compassion on us. He'll subdue our iniquities. He'll cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. This is the incomparable nature of God. Beautiful description of God's forgiveness. So we can say with Micah, who is a God like you? There is no other. There is no other. You know, the forgiveness of sins. We have a God that pardons, that wants to pardon. He does not hold our sins against us. He casts them in the depths of the sea and remembers them no more. You know, if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And as it says in Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Well, this was the book of Micah, and I, there's a whole lot more in here, and I trust it whets your appetite to go in and look and read. But you know, what doth the Lord require of thee to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Israel didn't do that. So the question is, are we? Am I? Am I? Am I walking? Am I doing justly? Do I love mercy? Not just doing mercy, do I love it? And am I walking humbly with thy, with thy God? You know, that is what God is looking for not looking for the ritual, but, he, but he's looking for the relationship, that inward reality. Let's stand together for a word of prayer. Jim, would you have us lead us in a word of prayer? And after that, we have a song.